Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, June the 9th, 2017, and that means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show, the monster show of the week, the Friday, Friday, Friday show. And today, again, episode 2020, 2020. I just think that's cool. I know I kind of get stuck on numeric patterns and things like that, but uh, 2020, man, that's, that's kind of wild to me that we're up to that much. And it just kind of drives home a thing I say all the time about TikTok, TikTok, the clock ticks for us all. You've got to be working on liberty, freedom, and independence in, in, in your life. You have to be, or society's working against you, time's working against you. It's, it's a sliding scale. And you don't get to choose whether you're on that sliding scale or not. You are on it, and if you're not moving forward, time moves against you and pushes you backwards. So make sure you're building the life that you want. If you're not doing it, you're not prepared. You can't be not building the life you want today and think you're prepared for tomorrow. It just doesn't work that way, good times or bad. It's the show credo, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today uh, we got a lot of stuff for the expert council. We haven't heard from Jeff Lawton for a while. We've got him on today dealing with a leaking dam. I've got the skinny on the cryptocurrency ripple from Brandon Todd, his first expert council Q&A appearance. I have fencing goats out of your fruit trees from a guy that knows his goats, Nicholas Ferguson. We have keeping batteries alive in a cold winter from Stephen Harris, even though we're in the middle of summer. Hey, some of you guys are where winter is. You're in, in the other part of the world. I know that. We've got people down there in the Southern Hemisphere. We have heat-treating old blades from Patrick Rohrman. Tetanus considerations from old Dr. Bones. Lacto-fermentation on the road, like Leroy Pornell on the road from Erica Strauss. And the whole truth about organic versus conventional food from yours truly, Jack Spierko. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine? Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home. Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, the year is actually not the episode anymore. We are taking a journey through history starting in year one, and we are of this episode of 2020 up to the year three. I have two segments today, and since they're brief, I can now read the whole history segment until these guys go crazy on me and start making them giant again. But uh, I have one from South Bob Ben and one from David Verne. David Verne says, um, I am not South Bob Ben. I thought Ben could use some help since he's the only one doing the history segments now. And ancient Rome was one of my favorite historical periods. David Verne. Well, David, welcome to the team here. 
From Southpaw Ben, we have the state of China in the year three. Um, currently, the Wang Mang is the ring regent to the heir of the throne. He will later claim the mandate from heaven and make himself emperor and found the Xin Dynasty, which splits the Han Dynasty into its two distinct time periods. The first called the Western Han Dynasty and is the Han Dynasty before the Xin Dynasty and the Eastern Han Dynasty, which is after Xin's rule. The Xin Dynasty will rule from 9 to 23 AD because at the moment Wang Mang is simply a loyal regent. My take by Southpaw Ben. During this time in Chinese history, the power struggle makes Rome's look like child's play with emperors murdering their predecessors, purging possible contenders and pretenders, and by taking over complete control while they are really just a regent, to name a few. Despite this, the Han Dynasty, which is around 200 years old, will continue for 200 more years and is considered the golden age of ancient China, with the modern ethnic majority of China referring to themselves as the Han people. I guess my quick take on that one is even when rulers are assholes, if you have the same assholes for a long time, people adapt to it, and stability uh, is, is a hallmark of something like that. And um, people will figure out how to best operate under those circumstances. And uh, I believe that the founders of this country, when they, they set up our form of government, try to set up stability but have the people that actually did the governing move in and out relatively quickly because uh, they didn't make it where it was really convenient or desirable to be a career politician. But yet people used that system, which has been stable for over 200 years, to alter things so that it was convenient and desirable to become a career politician. I have a little thought, too. Um, Nancy Pelosi it was today... Uh, kind of chided and, and kind of taken away or fixed by her staff a little bit because she seemed to be inf inferring that currently Bush was president. And yesterday, multiple times while questioning James Coney, uh, John McCain uh, referred to him as investigating Mr. Comey, as investigating himself when he meant to say Mr. Trump. I mean multiple Not once, but multiple, multiple times. I believe we're at a point now where if you're worried about the democratic system of our government, you might want to look into term limits to get people out of office before they succumb to dementia uh, or Alzheimer's disease. And I'm not putting anybody down that has those horrible conditions, but if that's where you are, you shouldn't be making decisions about the future of our nation. I don't think any of them really should, but that really could be a problem. Let's take a look at another heir is dying, contributed by David Verne. Last year, Gaius Caesar, the heir to the empire, was wounded during negotiations gone wrong. The wound initially seemed to be minor, but he became completely bedridden by this year. He has written to Augustus that he no longer wishes to continue in politics and resigns his military command. As the year progresses, his health and mental state continue to fail. He will die the next year in 4 AD. My take by David Verne. Either Gaius allowed his wound to grow infected while on campaign, or he was poisoned. I'm not really sure. There's only so much doctors could do for infected wounds before antibiotics. But Rome did have a decent medical practice. They didn't make any many advances in terms of drugs or medical procedures, but they made great advancements in hygiene. Most major cities had aqueducts that supplied clean running water to private homes and fountains. 
Public baths were built and were made cheap enough that anyone could use them. It seems ridiculous that a civilization from 2,000 years ago could supply city populations with clean water, while our modern government fails to do so in cities like Flint. It may be because at the time, as much as the government was a thumb on the people, if the government screwed up bad enough, the people rushed the government and drug everybody into the streets and hung them from, you know, poles and set them on fire and fed them to dogs. I'm, I'm just saying, like, this is how things worked back then. Um, if the government failed miserably enough, the people just pulled their, their, their clowns out of the palace or out of the Colosseum or wherever they were and just got rid of them and said, let's start over. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying that, you know, when it was, that was what failure meant versus, you know, getting a job as a lobbyist and being paid 800,000 a year. People were paid a little bit more attention to the needs of the people that they claim to have ruled over, led, or served. Just saying. Again, not saying it's better, just saying there's a perspective to look at there. Want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. All right, with that knocked out, let's hear from uh, Jeff Lawton. He haven't heard from Jeff in a while. Haven't had a lot of questions for Jeff, guys. Uh, so if you want to hear from the man, the, like the, I'd say the number one authority on permaculture in the world, Jeff Lawton, that we're fortunate to have on our, our uh, expert council, send me questions for him. Remember, you can send questions for any of the expert council members. TSPC, space, expert, in the subject line, bottom line, up front, question, up front, and then hit the return key a couple times. Give me your add-on details, and I'll get it off to them. Jeff, let's talk about leaking dams, man. What's up with that, and uh, what options do we have to repair them, possibly without draining them first? Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia, and I have a question from Heather. Um, Heather Ruthig, and um, Heather is in Ontario, Canada, and she has a problem with a dam she's built which is um, 25 feet by 60 feet by 12 feet deep. Um, and it's uh, full of water, but the uh, heavy clay has some problems um, and um, it's uh, sprung a leak. And she wants to know if she can, she can fix it while it's still got water in because she needs the water. And she's asking about the polymer, um, the new polymer ways of, of treating dams. Their products uh, from Australia, Shalex Industries and Polymer I Innovations. Now, I haven't used polymer myself. I've used quite a bit of bentonite in the past, but uh, earth movers I've worked with say it works well and they've had great success. And there's some fantastic reviews out there. Um, everybody says they're, they're getting results. Um, you can put it into the water and it sucks through uh, the leak point and snags it up. 
Um, the companies that make these products say there's no problem with any toxicity. Uh, no one's saying anything bad about these things. Um, I haven't heard anybody say they've, they've, tried, they've used it and it hasn't worked. So I'd say give it a go. Um, sounds great. And I'd definitely listen to the word of the earth movers um, because they're dealing with these issues all the time. So, Heather, I think it's worth a try. Okay, there you go. Jeff Lawton coming to you from Australia. Okay, great. And with that, I have a question for our newest expert council member, Brandon Todd, on cryptocurrency. I've recently found out about a cryptocurrency called Ripple that's designed to uh, work for the financial sector, specifically the banks, etc. And uh, it's really affordable right now, and I picked a little bit up purely speculative. I wanted Brandon's opinion on Ripple, what he thinks about it, and ways to hold it other than holding it on an exchange like Bittrex. Brandon, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon Todd from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer a question for the expert panel. Today I have a question from Jack about Ripple. Jack was wondering what I think about Ripple and if there is a good solution for an off-exchange storage for XRP, which is the ticker symbol for Ripple's currency. Well, the first time I heard about Ripple was about 2013, and I wanted to set up a client or piece of software to download to my computer so I could hold some Ripple and participate in the network, but it was hard to do back then, and I wasn't really clear of, of how to do that. Um, I think there was some command line tools or something like that, and I just didn't do, get invested. Then in 2015, Ripple Labs stopped supporting the client that they did offer, so I kind of forgot about it. Okay, guys, let me get the technical stuff out of the way first. Let's look at some specs on Ripple. Well, it has a four-second transaction time, and this is because of its architecture, um, which is like not like a traditional blockchain architecture like Bitcoin. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, it can scale to 50,000 transactions per second, has very low fees, 100 billion, um, 100 billion created, uh, 20 billion being kept by the creators. It has open source code. And it runs on trust servers of about 25 or so with those servers connected to multiple nodes in a UNL or unique node uh, list system with 80% required trust from those nodes where servers don't have to have a copy of the long ledger like BTC, just a snapshot of an updated database. So yeah, so that's kind of the, the big difference between Ripple and Bitcoin as far as being able to scale to such high transactions, right? So with, with Bitcoin... If you run a full node, you have to hold an entire copy of the ledger or the blockchain so you can query all the transaction. Because without a doubt, with Bitcoin, the only way to be completely sure that um, you know, you're not getting a double spend or something going on is that you hold an entire copy of the ledger um, and then you can query all the transactions all the way back. Uh, but with Ripple, it's a little bit different to where They have like a server node model set up, um, and it's very, very interesting and unique in the way that um, a server has a UNL or unique node list, or every server has it, its own unique list of nodes that it's connected to, where not every server is not connected to every node. So it's like kind of like a hub-and-spoke model, maybe, of sorts. And they reach consensus between the nodes and each server, Um, and then the server reaches consensus on a bigger server network. So that's that's the way that I understand it. 
um, and how it's different than Bitcoin. And that's how it can scale to that um, up to 50,000 transactions per second. With with Bitcoin, you have the 10-minute blocks, and it's like three to five transactions per second or something. So much, much bigger transaction per second than, than with Bitcoin. Now to answer your question about getting your XRP off of Bittrex. Um, so one thing you can do is go and download, and I'll send you a link, Jack, but I'll spell it out for, for the listeners. Um, you, you'll go to... You'll go to this website, github.com slash t-a-g-a-w-a slash r-i-p-p-l-y dash paper dash wallet. And you're going to see like a little green tab and it says like clone or download and you click on it and there's a zip file there. You want to download that. Then you want to disconnect your computer from the internet and run it locally. And you'll, you'll just run an HTML file there in that folder, in that zip folder after you extract it. Um, and then a, a, uh, a wallet format is going to pop up on your screen with two, R- two QR codes. One is going to be a public key. The other one's going to be a private key. And there's also going to be characters there displayed also, you know, with the QR codes. So then you, you can go over to bittrex.com and what you can do is copy that QR code of the public key, uh, address, uh, from your computer and, and then you want to send it over to bittrex and paste it in there so you can send your XRP out of bittrex to that paper wallet public private key pair that you just created now later on if you want to move those coins back out of that paper wallet onto some sort of software that you can move it around exchange it into bitcoin or dollars whatever you want to do then you can go over to gatehub.net g-a-t-e-h-u-b.net and sign up for an account and then you can spend from that paper wallet um, and then you're going to select add new wallet and then import then you're going to put in your uh, paper wallet's private key. So that's one option. There's another option now, and, what, and it's going to cost you a little bit of money, but you can purchase uh, a Ledger Nano S model hardware wallet for about $58. Um, it might be worth the investment anyway, as hardware wallets are a great option for cold storage, and the Ledger Nano S supports multiple coins like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Fido, U2F, Doge, Zcash, Dash, Stratus, and XRP. And I think they're going to be supporting Monero here in, in the near future. Um, so that should get you uh, two solutions, uh, one that will cost you some money and one that won't to get your money off of Bittrex. So here's my take on Ripple. I think Ripple is interesting because what they found is you don't have to have a centralized authority like in the case with Visa where 100% of the transactions are matched up and valid or a decentralized model like Bitcoin, where it requires 100% consensus through proof of work, which is much slower. With Ripple, there is enough overlap of nodes and servers that they only require 80%, and it seems to work just fine for 100% consensus on the ledger going forward. And because of the architecture of the server node system, they have a new consensus every five seconds. So if there is a disagreement then they can just participate in this new consensus process every five seconds until they reach consensus. This brings us to Ripple's approach to the market. Because Ripple is more of a distributed database settlement system with multiple currency use cases rather than a pure blockchain ledger with one currency like Bitcoin, it's way more popular with the banking industry than Bitcoin is, and rightly so because of scaling issues with Bitcoin. Ripple just makes more sense with their possible 50,000 transactions per second capacity, Because of this, mostly financial institutions hold a good part of the Ripple server infrastructure. 
This has turned a lot of Bitcoin people off to Ripple, as many people that use Bitcoin do so because of grievances with the banking system. But the truth is that anyone can still participate in maintaining a server, node, or just hold your coins as a user on the Ripple protocol. Now, because Ripple was largely a big pre-mine of 100 billion coins, and the Ripple company holds 20% or 20 billion of those coins, many people in the cryptocurrency space point to that and think, way too much supply to have any store of value. Also, some people worry about a big dump of supply from the foundation. While these, of course, are valid concerns, we have seen the price of Ripple go way up, 700%, just since April, and that's after the correction. We seem to be in a really big correction right now across the board with cryptocurrencies. Two things about supply. First, it can be a good thing for the company to hold 20% to create a put of sorts for value and user adoption of XRP. Also, when XRP is sent across the network, there are no fees to be paid, as there are no miners with Ripple. Instead, a little bit of XRP gets burnt or destroyed. This is to prevent spam, because if you didn't have this, then nothing would prevent an entity from setting up multiple wallets, sending back and forth constantly to try to slow down or attack the network. The burn makes this too expensive. Also, what it does, in a sense, is pays a little bit of value back to the holders of XRP. Okay, so personally, I don't have any XRP at the time, but I may pick some up as a little speculative move after this correction levels out, because I do believe there will be more adoption coming with Ripple, especially in the banking industry, judging by what was said at CoinCensus 2017 from some of the core members and their recent track record of bringing more institutions on board. So, that's my take on Ripple. Again, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, and I would like to invite all the TSP listeners over to my website, CryptoSkim.com, and sign up for my weekly skim newsletter on cryptocurrency happenings. If you're new to crypto, awesome! Now is a great time to learn. I will be adding beginner tutorial videos in the next couple of weeks, so be on the lookout for those. Thanks again for the question. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, wishing you all a wonderful day. All right, so uh, great analysis of the Ripple currency. It's something that, you know, what he brought up is something I actually kind of agree with. I I primarily like the concept of cryptocurrency to avoid the banking system, and Ripple is made for the banking system. But I also have an IRA. I also have multiple stocks, and those are all part of the mainstream financial system. So... I don't know that I would really support Ripple, but if I can profit off of Ripple, then I can profit off of Ripple. That's kind of the way that I look at it. Uh, it will never be some majority of storage of wealth, but it's also interesting. One of the things I didn't know is that basically a small amount of Ripple is just burned up and gone. So what that does is it actually makes Ripple a deflationary currency as well. The more that it's used, the less of it there will be. It's an interesting, interesting idea. I wonder if there's any fail-safe, like there's you know billions of them, and what happens when there's only none? I mean, like, can I guess if it's a percentage of a percentage, it's like taking a step toward the wall, and you're 10 feet away from the wall, and you move 50% of the way to the wall. And if you keep doing that, how long will it take you to get to the wall? And the true answer is you'll never get to the wall if you only go 50% closer. There will always be some microscopic separation. I wonder if it works like that. I'm not really sure, but uh, I, I do uh, like the concept of, a, of the fact that you can 
take opportunities today for, for very little money with things that could pay off in the future. And if they don't, again, like John Pugliano said in our interview this week, cryptocurrency money should be Vegas money. That's the way you should look at it. Anyway, next I have a totally different question. We've talked about leaking ponds and cryptocurrency. Now let's talk about goats and goats trying to eat our trees. Nick Ferguson, save the trees, man. Save the trees from the goats. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com here to answer Alexander's question on fencing goats out of his fruit trees. Well, he says that he has several small food forests planted on his property and he plans to add more and he wants to get goats mostly for meat production and for helping clear brush and he's worried about them eating his fruit trees for good reason because they will. That's the first thing they will try and eat. And he wants to know about using T-posts and goat fencing around the trees. That's not a bad idea. Electric fencing, I think you should add that to the goat fencing. Uh, welded wire fencing, absolutely not. Welded wire is awful for goats. I've had goats push right through it. They'll break the welds and just walk right through it. So definitely never use welded wire fencing with your goats unless you have a whole heck of a lot of electric fencing right on the animal side of that fence so they don't ever even touch it. They can't ever, ever, ever touch it. That's the only time you should ever use welded wire is if they will never touch it. So I just say don't use welded wire. Okay, so let's let's answer this as short as possible and then I'll get into some details like I normally do. So the short answer is that it's best if you use a sturdy physical barrier like a woven wire fence or a cattle panel of some kind plus electric fence in the form of electro netting or poly wire or just regular fence wire. I personally would use the cheapest woven wire cattle fence to encircle the whole area where the fruit trees are located and you put T-posts every 10 to 15 feet and add to that fence on the goat side um, your electric fence and that should be a wire about four to six inches off the ground. You want it to be able to zap them if they try and push underneath your your perimeter fence. And then another wire at your average goat shoulder height. So whatever those adult goats shoulder is, that is how high you want your second wire. And that's going to be about their nose height. And the reason why you do that is when they go to push on it, they rub on it or they go to, you know, eat, you know, their nose is going to be about that height. So you want them to get zapped. And another at the top of the fence. Those three wires are the bare minimum. If you want to get even more intimidating with your fence, add some extra hot strands around that middle um, strand. The more electric strands you have there, the better chance they're not going to mess with your fence and the better chance you're going to have of your fruit trees being alive next year. And another thing, make sure your ground system is really good. You're in Missouri, so you could be in really rocky soils. You could be in kind of the Ozarks. I don't know what your soils are like, but if you're going to have trouble with good conductivity in your soils, then you might want to consider linking your ground system to that physical barrier fence that you have on the far side of your animals. So you'll have your animals, then the electric, and then the physical barrier fence. And that physical barrier fence is just to make sure that 
there's something for them to push up against if they get zapped. You don't want them to get zapped and just run through your strands of electric if you're going with just electric. So that's why I say have that either goat fence or cattle fence, whatever, as that physical barrier. And so if you link your ground system to that physical barrier fence and you have at least three ground rods set up at industry standard, you know, it's, I think it's like a minimum of 12 foot apart in a series. That means you drive one eight foot ground rod and then 12 foot away, you drive another eight foot ground rod and then another an additional 12 foot away in a straight line. And all those ground rods need to be linked together with a wire connected to your earth terminal on the fence energizer. And if you link up your perimeter fence or that physical barrier fence to that earth system as well, then you just have an extra grounding ability wherever those T-posts are in the ground. And I would make sure that you have a three-jewel pulsing fence energizer. Don't don't cheap out on the energizer or you'll be regretting it the whole time you're planting new fruit trees. Now, if you have a row of trees, let's say in a swale mound, for instance, and you want to graze the interswale area, then I'd say the safest thing is to put up permanent fencing on either side of the trees. However, that makes maintenance a major pain in the rear, and it'll probably make your life miserable. So in that case, I'd invest in the electronet fencing, and I'd use that to paddock shift your goats through the area. Again, you should invest in an appropriate energizer. I've tried several brands, and the one I'm sticking with for now is called Speedrite. It's one word, Speed, R-I-T-E. I have the Speedrite 3000 model, which is a three-joule energizer, and I wish I had the 18-joule energizer. So I say three joules is the lowest you want to go. Do not go lower than that. Six joules is much better. Now, I want to get back to that uh, earth or ground part of your electric fence system. You see, the thing is, if your energizer is far away from your target area, let's say, you know, you have your food forest area that's 600 feet, 1,000 feet away from your energizer and where your ground rods are, and you experience some dry weather, and forage is harder to come by, and the goats smell those fruit trees, they're going to put more pressure on your electric fence. They're going to try and go through it to get to that delicious fruit tree foliage and bark they'll test it more they'll put more pressure on it and if it's worth the shock they'll be happy to get shocked if that means they can walk your fence down and get to those tasty fruit trees and it won't take but a handful of minutes for them to destroy years of growth in your fruit trees if they don't just outright kill the trees by stripping the bark from the trunk so i suggest using your perimeter fence as an addition to your ground system. If you do that, then you can put ground rods wherever they're needed along your perimeter fence by putting a simple jumper wire from the ground rod to the perimeter fence. And if you do that, then the shortest route to complete that circuit is only to the closest ground rod. And what that means is even if your orchard area is far away, you can still get a really strong shock because... There's, it's not very far for that electricity to go through the ground to complete that circuit. And if it's a really bad problem, then just add a ground rod to the area near your fruit trees and attach the rod to your ground system somehow so you can get the strongest zap possible when those goats decide to try your fence. See, the way it works is if you touch both posts on your energizer, you're going to get as strong of a shock as that energizer can possibly deliver. If you run a wire down from the positive and down from the negative and you run that wire 
600 feet away from your fence energizer. You run both of those wires. You've got your hot wire and you've got your ground wire. And you have them both mounted on a board, let's say, and you reach up and you touch both the hot wire and the ground wire at the same time. You're going to get pretty much just the same shock as if you were standing right at the energizer. So you, you kind of get the same kind of an effect when you have a ground rod right in the ground in front of you or 15 feet away and you touch that hot wire. It doesn't matter if that energizer is a long way away. All it has to do is just complete that circuit through your body to your closest ground rod. So if that ground rod is right by all your fruit trees and so is your fence and they touch it, then it only has to go to that closest ground rod. So I'm being a real stickler about all this because all it takes is one trip outside the fence and you'll have weeks, if not months, of retraining to get your animals back to respecting that electric fence. Goats are notorious for ignoring an electric fence if they, th- if they learn that uh, it's just not too bad. I had a Nigerian dwarf buck who had no problem standing inside the electric fence, contentedly chowing down while the fence was literally making his stomach muscles convulse with each pulse. I mean, it was kind of funny to see him standing there convulsing while happily chowing down on Comfrey. I mean, all he had to do was back up two steps or continue forwards a couple steps to stop getting shocked, but he just didn't care. Uh, I kind of referred to him as my honey badger goat. So I say all that to say... Don't let them get the upper hand. Make those fences really uncomfortable to tangle with, and you shouldn't have too much problem out of your goats. I hope this helps you out, Alexander, and I hope it helps out any of you guys and gals who are thinking about getting a couple goats. Keep the great questions coming. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. Do good things. All right, next question I have is a question for Stephen Harris on batteries for things like flashlights in extremely cold weather. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I got a great one here from Claude in Finland, and he wrote it to me in December, and I'm sorry, I'm just getting to it now because cold weather question, and uh, it's the middle of summer right now. But Claude asked me, what is the best solution for keeping a working flashlight in a car or truck during the winter? I have found that batteries freeze up in northern winters, and they fail on you at the worst moment. I guarantee you, everything will fail you at the worst moment. I used to have a 3D-cell battery Magalite uh, pre-LED, so filament bulb, stored in the car, but it would never work when it's really cold. Then I put some hand-cranked LED lights in the car to avoid the battery troubles, and those lights are pretty useless. Yes, Claude, almost anything hand-cranked or human-powered is pretty useless when it comes to energy. So even when it's not so cold, they give about as much light as a lit match. Yeah, you're better off with a candle. And for about uh, as long, too, so that before they need cranking. Are there any good solutions for a flashlight that is, listen here, that is independent from the car battery and that will stay alive in the car during the winter would be much appreciated. The winters up here in Finland are long and dark, and so chances are good that when you get in trouble with a car, you'll need a flashlight. Claude, 
you ask a very wonderful question. It's from your own experience. And the first thing I would tell you is you got this huge battery. I mean, if you dropped it on your foot, it would break your toes. And lead-acid batteries hate the cold weather. I mean, literally, you can have a quarter of your lead-acid battery capacity when it's 32 out versus it being 90. Lead-acid batteries hate the cold. But it's under the hood, and the under-hood temperature is generally the air coming off the radiator, which is about 220 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, you've been driving, and then you have a failure. You got this nice, warm, lead-acid battery that's absolutely huge, equal to hundreds and hundreds of D-cell batteries. Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of it? Two is one, one is none. Your first one is to have something that clamps onto the battery with a long cable that runs like an LED hand light for you for when the car breaks down. So you can have plenty of light to change a tire, to flag someone down, etc. So my advice to all of you would be have a light or two that connects directly to your batteries. You can find them at Walmart in the automobile aisle. There's lots of choices. They're 12 volts DC powered. Now, Claude, your two is one. I'm going to give you your two. I'm going to make this simple. Listen to me, all of you, very carefully. The most reliable battery on the entire face of the planet to entrust your life to is the Energizer Lithium AA batteries. This is not lithium ion. This is not rechargeable lithium. This is use once and throw away lithium batteries. They're silver and blue. They have a quote-unquote shelf life of 20 years, which means in 20 years it'll still have 80 to 85% of its capacity as it did when you first bought it. So even on its date, if stored at room temperature, it is still a very viable battery. Lithium batteries will not leak. You will not go to use your flashlight and find it full of, you know, caustic stuff and swollen batteries and everything else like that. The lithiums come in AA and AAA only. They don't come in D cells. I wish they did, but they'd cost like $25 each. The Energizer lithium AA batteries cost between 2 and $3 each. And like I said, they're good for 20-plus years. Now, a characteristic of this type of lithium battery is it works down to, like, minus 20 Fahrenheit. I got the temperature curves. I put them in my battery video that I did about um, disposable batteries, double A's, triple A's, D-cells. And the number one world record holder for working in a cold temperature is the disposable lithium energizer lithium batteries. Now, what I would suggest you do is you go out and get yourself a Maglite flashlight that runs on two AA batteries that has an LED in the head. And I would put two of these Energizer AA lithiums inside the flashlight and screw down the base. 
And then I would take some Gorilla Tape and I would tape to the outside body of the flashlight two more lithium AA batteries. That way, if there was a problem with your AA, lithium AA batteries in the flashlight, let's say you had to use it for 10 hours, 20 hours or more, you got a backup set of batteries taped right there to the flashlight. You don't need to store the AA's elsewhere in a car or in a container. You don't have to go look for them. They're taped to the flashlight. In fact, if you wanted to tape four AA batteries to the flashlight to be two is for two is one, one is none, three is for me, then I would do that. But so between the the energy in your car battery, the energy of the lithium AA's and the Maglite LED flashlight, I think it will do you a fantastic job of helping keep you prepared for those winters like people get in Alaska, people get in Minnesota, Montana, Finland, Norway, the Arctic. I know people who work for the Department of Defense in a military role, and they go out and do things where their life is on the line. They will take nothing but Energizer lithium batteries with them. And if I've had long discussions with them about it and the advantages of <clears throat> different types of batteries and everything else. But it comes right down to it. It's the most reliable battery on the face of the planet as it is made today in 2017. So, Charles, uh, sorry, not Charles, Claude. I'm sorry, did I call you Cla- Charles? I meant to say Claude. Claude from Finland, thank you very much for such a simple yet effective question that will help many people in the TSP audience. I find it thrilling that you're in Finland and listening to us here in the United States. The global reach of TSP is just something. This is Stephen Harris for the Expert Council. If you want to see more of the fun stuff I have done with Jack, please go to stephen1234.com, where absolutely almost everything is entirely free. (laughs) I'll see you guys later. Bye. All right, great stuff from Stephen Harris, as we always have come to expect. Next question is for uh, Patrick Rohrman on heat-treating blades. But now when you're making a knife, say you have this older blade that doesn't seem to be holding an edge anymore. Can we reheat-treat that with an oil dip? Patrick, take it away. Hey, guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives, coming to you with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Craig. Dear Patrick, I have trouble maintaining an edge on my hatchet's and axe. It, would it be beneficial to heat up and oil quench the edge? Background. I'm a pipe fitter that makes my own welding wedges from low-grade rebar. After heating and hammering the shape, the last step is to sharpen and oil quench a quarter inch of the edge. This process allows me to have an extremely fine, sharp edge that can stand up to hammering them into place. What made me think about this is coming across some 50-year-old wedges my dad had made. And after 30 years banging around unused in my toolbox, 
I found them still to be perfectly sharp and serviceable. Thank you for your help, Craig. Craig, this is a good question. Uh, it's going to depend on your axe and whether or not, if the axe is, uh, or hatchet's junk anyways, you're not going to hurt anything. A lot of axes and chisels and tools like that are differentially heat treated, meaning that only the edge has been hardened or the tool has been hardened and then tempered uh, as drawing out the hardened steel and leaving just the edge hard. So over time, you can sharpen past the hardened edge and at that point, you're not going to be able to keep a, a sharp edge on it. So you could then reheat and quench that edge to restore the hardness uh, back to your cutting edge. Now, I'd make sure that you know what you're working with and make sure that it's not a collectible axe or something that might have value, but especially if it's a cheap axe that you're going to just throw away or not use, go ahead and give it a shot. And by the sounds of it, it sounds like this is something you've already done, so it'll be old hat to you. It's really not that complicated. Um, if you heat it up to uh, a dull red and then quench it in some oil, take a file and try to cut into the edge. If, it, if the file just kind of skates across the edge, then you know that you've uh, been successful in hardening that edge. If it hasn't, just do it again and get it a little bit hotter. Now, with one thing to keep in mind, too, is with an axe, you don't necessarily want an extremely hard edge. So then you can follow that up with a temper cycle, two temper cycles of two hours apiece at, say, uh, 450, 500 degrees, depending on the steel you're using. And this will pull some of that hardness back out, give you a tougher edge that's going to not chip out on you and uh, take a little more abuse. So I thank you for the question. I hope this helps. Uh, let me know how that axe does for you once you do that to it. And uh, anybody else got any questions, feel free to send them to Jack. And I'll do my best to keep answering them. Right now I have uh, kind of a backlog of questions to answer, but uh, keep sending them in. Thank you very much. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives with today's Expert Council Question of the Week. So that, that was one that I, I, I really thought the answer was going to be no, don't do it. Um, I, I, you know, you, you buy uh, something that's got a blade. It's been heat treated. The guy that you know did it knew what he was doing, but I never really thought about like certain implements only the edges heat treated, and you could sharpen past that hardened edge. So great stuff, and I learned something today, thanks to Patrick. I got a question now for uh, Doc Bones on uh, tetanus, and an unusual question, at least I think, about tetanus. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now we're close to a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Kyle, who writes... 
I'm wondering if the tetanus shot for horses and other livestock can be acceptable to pack in an emergency first aid kit for myself and my family. I've heard Doc Bones talk about things like fish mocks and a few other things that are acceptable for human usage. I've been wondering lately if there are any other livestock type meds that we can add to our emergency first aid bags. I try to keep one in each of my vehicles at all times. Two pickups, one motorcycle, and one 18-wheeler. Wow. Kyle, the criteria I use for adding antibiotics are pretty stringent, as it's important to make dosing easy. Fish mocks and the other dozen antibiotics or so that I suggest for the survival medic must, one, only contain one ingredient, the antibiotic itself, nothing that makes your scale shinier or your feathers brighter. Two, be produced in human dosages. Fish mocks, for example, only comes in 250 and 500 milligrams, the exact doses used for children and adult humans. Three, be identical in appearance, down to the identification numbers on the tablet or capsule, to human drugs manufactured by at least one pharmaceutical company. This is how I know they're really human meds repackaged and distributed as veterinary meds. And four, must be available without a prescription and purchasable in quantities sufficient to make sense for the survival medic. Caused by a soil-borne organism, Clostridium tetani, tetanus is a life-threatening disease characterized by severe muscle paralysis. Tetanus is often contracted through a wound, most commonly a deep puncture. The vaccines are made up of tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis toxins that have been made non-toxic but still have the ability to create an immune response. These vaccines do not contain live bacteria. You cannot get tetanus from the tetanus shot. The human dose of tetanus toxoid for those seven years of age or older are as follows. Primary immunization, never given it before, usually involves a series of doses, 0.5 milliliters intramuscularly in the lateral mid-thigh or upper arm of tetanus toxoid once, followed by a second dose four to eight weeks later, and the third dose given six to 12 months after the second dose. Routine booster injections are also given on a periodic basis, 0.5 milliliters intramuscularly or subcutaneously of tetanus toxoid given 10 years after completion of primary immunization and every 10 years thereafter. Now, if a dose is given sooner as part of wound management, the next booster is not needed for 10 years thereafter. Tetanus toxoid should not be given to kids less than 7 years of age as most routinely vaccinated kids have already received protection. Tetanus toxoid is a preventative and not used for people experiencing symptoms of a current tetanus infection. As for equine tetanus, the dosage given to horses is, due to their size, more than given to humans, so it fails my criteria. Animal vaccinations in general are not subjected to the same rigorous pre-market testing that's required for the release of a human vaccine. They can be released without the large controlled studies that are necessary prior to putting out a human vaccine. The U.S. Department of Agriculture merely requires that vaccines for animals should be shown to be safe and pure and have a reasonable expectation of efficacy prior to their release to the market. Therefore, it's unlikely that animal vaccines would meet safety standards for human use. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor, big, big favor, by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, that's DR Bones Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. 
So as many of you know, I have real concerns about um, the vaccine policies in this country, uh, the massive amounts of vaccines that we give to our children, uh, the number, the sheer number that are given at one time, um, the the downplaying of side effects and long-term consequences uh, as risk factors, uh, all of the things like that. But that does not mean I'm anti-vaccine. And tetanus is one of those things that, You can get tetanus, and tetanus will kill you. Um, I am unhappy about the fact that you can no longer go get a tetanus shot. Uh, I think it's almost impossible to find uh, a doctor, a clinic, anywhere that will have a tetanus vaccination by itself. They'll actually have what's called a DTaP, which will vaccinate you against diphtheria, tetanus, and whooping cough, also known as pertussis. Um I don't particularly look at the DTaP vaccine as being the you know most concerning vaccine out there. I personally think that you know vaccines given to adults, well-developed children, etc., generally, and again, the big word there, generally are safe and relatively effective. I do believe the tetanus vaccine is effective. If the Texas tetanus vaccine was not effective, you'd still have people dying of tetanus in the large numbers they did prior to its its release. Uh, tetanus, of course, being caused by bacteria that you end up with generally deep puncture wounds is where that comes from. And those deep puncture wounds continue to happen. Uh, the, the tetanus, uh, is still prevalent in the ecosystem. You could test just about anywhere for it and find it if you want to find it out there. So it's there. There's no explanations, you know, like, the reason measles went down may not all be due to vaccinations. Okay, there, there, there's no way to explain it away. And what Doc's basically saying is, look, you only need one of these every 10 years. If you're concerned about it, don't be walking around in the woods with horse tetanus vaccine. Go out and get your booster shots. Um, and, and and I would tend to agree with that one. And, and I, would, I would tend to agree with it for a reason that Doc alluded to, but he didn't say here. The tetanus vaccine does not confer immediate immunity. In fact, the immunity that confers it takes significant time uh, to, to happen, less time than it takes the tetanus to actually rear its ugly head and start paralyzing you and killing you. Meaning, if an unvaccinated person is exposed to tetanus and given the vaccine in the same day, the vaccine will not do anything to prevent the onset of infection of tetanus. Got it? So when somebody like steps on a nail and they give them a tetanus shot, it really is not beneficial unless that person is within the window of their booster, still has some immunity, and maybe it lends a boost to the immunity. It is better that you... And I, some of you are going to get mad at me here. He's, he's advocating vaccines. It'll be the same people that cheer me when I point out the inconsistencies and unreliabilities of reporting in studies and vaccinations. I look at this logically and rationally, and when I look at a vaccine, I look at risk versus uh, safety ratios, risk-reward ratios, and I say, do I want to die of tetanus? And the answer is no. And I say to myself, self, is it possible that you could get a deep puncture wound in some way that could infect you with tetanus? And my, myself says, yes, yes, it is. Therefore, the risk-reward ratio is, is pretty much in favor of tetanus. Do I think that at my age it's a good idea for me to run around getting vaccinated against diphtheria and whooping cough? No. 
And it's another problem I have with the vaccine manufacturers who simply get rid of individual vaccine choices for people and they make the problem that they say is a problem worse because now you make people more likely to avoid or postpone vaccinations because you do not give people the ability to individually immunize. And I think that's, that's important. I, I really do. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take our next one. This one is for Erica Strauss on lacto-fermentation on the road. Hey, guys, it's Erica from Northwest Edible calling in today to answer Paul's question about lacto-fermentation on the road. Really interesting one. Paul writes, I have two questions. Are there any other methods to storing lacto-fermented foods other than jars? And can any salt be used in the fermentation process? I am an over-the-road trucker and I'm getting seriously tired of the slim pickings from the truck stops. So I'm going to start lacto-fermenting for the road. I know that glass is the proper medium for lacto-fermenting, but are there non-breakable containers I can use to ferment my foods because 18-wheelers are not a gentle riding truck. And also, I know that iodized salt is a no-no, but is only sea salt appropriate for lacto-fermentation? Oh, I love this. I think this is just wonderful. Paul from Kansas is a total badass for wanting to take his fermentation on the road. I know... West Coast health-obsessed suburban moms with less commitment to the beneficial microflora in their diet than Paul the trucker in Kansas. That makes me really happy. So you rock, Paul. That's fantastic. On to your first question, what to ferment in. I think I can handle this one pretty easily. What I'd like to recommend is you pop into a restaurant supply store, and there has to be one somewhere along your route, and pick up some commercial food-safe storage containers. In the restaurant world, we have these incredibly space-efficient, square, sturdy, plastic food storage containers with airtight lids, and I think they're going to be perfect for your needs. They're, you know, basically bomb proof. They come in a bunch of different sizes, but the sizes are standardized. So you're never going to have to like go searching for the right size lid. Um, the lids aren't going to pop off when you go over a bumpy stretch of road and they're not going to take up all the space in your cab and they're plastic, but they're made from an incredibly rugged food safe plastic. So I think that's what you're going to want to look for. I have a ton of these type of containers that I personally use to store dry goods like grains and beans at my house. And the kind I use are Rubbermaid from the Rubbermaid commercial line. But there are several manufacturers of these type of food storage containers. And I'm not sure what's going to be available locally for you. Just look for something that where the plastic seems more like Lexan. It's it's almost like the glass of plastic. What you want to avoid are squishy, flexible takeout container type plastics. These contain um, softeners that can leach into your fermented food. Now, in terms of the health aspect, while I do think that glass is ideal, I would not personally freak out over heavy-duty, food-safe plastic storage of your fermented foods. I think the risk of you know chemical leaching into the acidic environment is 
less scary to me than the advantages that you're going to get from incorporating these healthy foods into your diet, especially as compared to, you know, truck stop or convenience store type options. So look for plastic that is, um, you know, hard, non-shatterable, commercial grade and food safe. Now I'd like to further suggest that you get yourself a cooler or even add just a heavy duty cardboard box and you keep your ferments in the truck in that. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, the cooler is going to exclude light, which will make your beneficial bacteria happier. And it's also going to moderate temperature swings, which is going to be important if your truck, if you leave your truck for a while and it starts to warm up from the, the greenhouse effect of all that sun entering the glass from the windshield and your windows and starting to warm up the cab. And then, um, you know, thirdly kind of related, if you know that you're going to get some crazy hot days, you can stick a convenience store ice pack in the cooler and try and moderate out some of those temperature swings, which is really, you know, doing right by your lactobacillus. So finally, the cooler or the box will further cushion your ferments from the bumps on the road. So I would say food safe uh, plastic storage containers in a cooler would be ideal for your situation. Okay, on to part two. Are, is any type of salt going to be appropriate for a lacto ferment? Paul from Kansas already mentioned um, not to use iodized salt, but let's just cover why and then talk about some of your other salt options for lacto fermentation. So iodized salt is your basic table salt, and it's not recommended for vegetable fermentation. And I think that this audience of TSP folks should know why. It's right there in the name, iodized, right? What do we use iodine for? Think about your your preparedness. Think about what you might have um, iodine swabs or a bottle of iodine on hand for for emergencies. It kills bacteria. Iodine is really excellent at killing off bacteria. So that's why we use it. You know, we can uh, rub it on our skin in a situation where, you know, we might need to have an injection or people who do, uh, who keep dairy animals might have an iodine based teat dip that they use, um, to clean off and to sanitize, uh, the teats from, you know, cows or sheep or goats before they milk. So obviously when what we're doing um, with our fermentation is trying to culture specific strains of beneficial bacteria in our controlled environment, we don't want to add something that is known for killing off and suppressing bacteria to that ferment. So that's why no iodized salt. Um, and that's why sort of your basic table salt is not ideal for lacto-fermentation. Okay, so another option would be kosher salt. Kosher salt is thus named because it's used in koshering meats, which is basically a process of drawing out excess blood from the meat for religious reasons. Kosher salt has a really nice large crystal size, which helps it sprinkle very easily and coat and melt into meat nicely for this purpose. It's typically 100% sodium chloride, which is the chemical name for what we think of as salt. And so it doesn't have any additives, but it also doesn't usually include any trace minerals. Kosher salt is what I use in my kitchen every day. Um, the preferred brand of kosher salt for most chefs I know is called Diamond Crystal. Um, I'm not affiliated with them or anything, but Diamond Crystal tends to be the salt that most professional chefs I know use because it has a really excellent feel 
feel so you can measure it by hand very easily. Um, Jack will back me up on this. No one who cooks, you know, frequently or professionally gets out the tablespoon or the teaspoon to measure out how much salt they're adding to their food. You, you might do that in a baking situation, but you certainly wouldn't do it when you're just sitting there cooking dinner. You feel how much salt you're putting on and diamond crystal has a particular texture that makes it very easy to measure by hand. So that's why most chefs uh, tend to really like it. Morton kosher salt is a little denser. It doesn't have quite as nice of a, of a hand feel, but it's also um, a fine kosher salt. Now, with all kosher salts, because of the light, fluffy shape, they tend to be far lighter than other salts. The flake size doesn't pack as densely in your volume measure. And so for fermentation, this is important because sometimes you're going to have to adjust recipes if you use kosher salt and use more of the salt. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Pickling salt is another option. It's a very fine purified salt, so it's not going to have anything extra like trace minerals, but it's also not going to have any caking agents or iodine. It's got a texture that's very similar to iodized table salt. It's a very fine grain salt, dissolves into brine very easily. Pickling salt is an excellent choice for brines for both canned pickles, like you would make with vinegar, and for fermentation brines. And especially given that you're thinking about doing this in, you know, in your rig, there is a real advantage to how easy it is to dissolve pickling salt that I think might make it your best choice. Another option is sea salt. Sea salt is derived from seawater. It's made through an evaporative process as opposed to being mined. A lot of salt that we buy um, comes from basically giant underground salt deposits and they just send a big machine down there and they grind it up and then they process it and and that's where we get our salt. By contrast, sea salt is made uh, by evaporating away excess moisture from either inland seas or ocean water that are naturally high in saline. Sea salt can be either refined or unrefined. It can be fine textured or coarse textured. There's a lot of variability here in sea salt because it's a very traditional product. Unrefined sea salt will tend to have a, a color, a tint to it. Gray, black, pink, red, etc. are all pretty common. And this color comes from additional trace minerals that have not been removed from the salt. So, okay, what salt can you use for lacto-fermentation? The answer is really any one you want. The primary difference between these salts, uh, with the exception of the iodized salt, which I, I recommend avoiding, is just trace mineral content and fluffiness. Uh, trace minerals is a personal call. The presence or absence of trace minerals and clays in these sea salts might have a beneficial impact on your health or it might not. I can tell you it will not have a substantial impact on the health of your ferment. The uh, beneficial bacteria, the lactic acid bacteria you're trying to encourage and culture out really are not going to care if you use an expensive, unrefined, imported salt, from, you know, sea salt, or if you just use pickling salt. Now, as to the texture or the fluffiness, really, the shape of the salt crystals, as long as you weigh and don't measure your salts, this is totally irrelevant. So for folks at home, if you do like I do and you weigh your salt, you'll get a consistent salinity by percentage and the texture of the salt you use will be totally irrelevant to that. So in other words, if you're measuring out 40 grams of salt, 40 grams of kosher salt and 40 grams 
concentrations of pickling salt are exactly the same sodium chloride to add to your brine. But if you measure by volume those two things, what you would find is the pickling salt would be a substantially smaller pile than the kosher salt. So, you know, weighing is kind of the great equalizer with fermentation brine strength levels. Um, that's why I recommend it. But for Paul, who's lacto-fermenting in his rig, it might be kind of a pain to haul around a scale uh, in order to weigh out his salt for every batch of lacto-fermented vegetables. And also, most lacto-fermentation recipes are written for volume measurements. Now, I happen to think that's kind of stupid, but you can only argue with stupid for so long, and I even write my lacto-fermentation recipes using volume measurements. It's just what most people want. So I would recommend that Paul get himself a box of either pickling salt or fine sea salt. Um, it doesn't have to be an unrefined, expensive sea salt. It can be just a plain, you know, bulk buy sea salt. Uh, refined will be fine, and it shouldn't be too expensive. I think three or four dollars a pound is what I usually see that kind of stuff for. So whichever of those is easiest to pick up, um, both are going to measure nearly the same and you can use those salts for your on-truck fermentation. If recipes that you're interested in call specifically for kosher salt, which of course is lighter and fluffier, the conversion is about 0.7 to 1 fine sea salt to kosher salt. So in other words, if a recipe calls for a tablespoon of kosher salt, to convert that, you would use 0.7 of a tablespoon, which is a generous two teaspoons of sea salt. Paul, I'm so excited for your experiments and um, trucking fermentation. I think it's going to be really interesting. And, I, you know, honestly, if you have time, I'd love a follow-up. Send me a line, drop me an email, and let me know how it's going. Sounds like such a great way to improve your health and nutrition while on the road. So hopefully this helps and we'll get you started. Okay, friends, again, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life. Come say hi anytime at nwedible.com. Find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash nwedible. And if you want to become a supporter and get cool extra content, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash nwedible. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks a lot, TSP community. Keep those questions coming. As a quick reminder, I'm here to answer all of your productive home questions. So food preservation, lacto-fermentation, natural home and body care, all that kind of stuff I can take a stab at. I hope this has helped for this week, and I will be back to chat with you in another couple of weeks. Okay, just in the interest of technical accuracy and because I like geeky factoids, I want to say one more thing on top of this about all this lesson we just had in salt. In the end, not all salt is equal, but all salt is sea salt. And that all salt originated in the Earth's oceans. I don't care where you're mining it or where you're getting it from today. Every speck of sodium chloride on planet Earth came from the sea. Doesn't matter where you find it today. Not really important, but I think it's, it's important for people to understand that. Like, the salt itself isn't the issue. It's what's done with the salt that becomes the issue. Do you add iodine to it, you know? For one example, uh, which I, I personally feel at one time, um, based on the diet in America and America not quite being, uh, well, a true, fully, full-on first world nation as we think of it today and some of the health problems in America, it, it kind of made sense, but I don't think it's necessary today. I don't use ionized salt ever, and I'm not falling over dying of rickets or something like that. So um, it's not really necessary anymore, but... 
Just just thought you might like to know that all salt did originate in Earth's oceans. There's no other way that salt's formed on the planet. Just just saying. Anyway, um, next question is for me, and it's a question on organic versus conventional foods. And the person that asked me the question sent me a link to a podcast. Um, I went out and found it on YouTube so I could direct everybody to it instead of just people using iTunes because it was on the iTunes podcast uh, from Prager University. Now, when I listened to this, it was cringe after cringe after cringe. Like, that's not what that is. No, that's not. And I almost thought I would just answer this question and not play this five-minute audio for you. When I thought about that, I thought to myself, Jack, you know what? If you don't, if you're going to speak about what the other side has to say, you should let it be heard, even if it's not the most um, enjoyable experience for people. If you're informed on this subject, you're going to be like, ugh, really? That's not what any, no, you got that wrong. That's how you're going to feel during this. If you're, if you're not informed, it may sound like a very compelling case, and it's not all wrong. I'll come back and tell you what I think about it, but let's hear from PragerU, I don't remember who the speaker is here, about organic versus conventional food, and is there really a difference in them? Is it worth the extra money, or is it a marketing scam? You are what you eat, goes the old saying. And everywhere, we're urged to eat organic. It's more nutritious, pesticide-free, and protects animals and the environment. At least, that's what we're being told, or rather, sold. And thanks to a lot of very effective marketing, Many people believe it. That's why when researchers at Cornell University gave study participants a choice between two identical items, one labeled organic and one regular, the participants confidently declared the organic choice to be lower in calories and more nutritious. They also said they'd pay 16 to 23% more for the organic choice. But these beliefs about organic food have nothing to do with reality. In 2012, Stanford University's Center for Health Policy did the most comprehensive comparison and found organic foods are not nutritionally superior to conventional alternatives. And a more recent review of 20 years of research into animal products by Italian researchers confirmed these findings. The authors concluded, scientific studies do not show that organic products are more nutritious and safer than conventional foods. That's fine, you might say. You don't eat organic foods just because the health benefits, but because you care about the treatment of farm animals and of the environment. Unfortunately, the facts don't support these beliefs either. Animals on organic farms are not generally healthier than animals on regular farms. A five-year U.S. study of dairy farms showed that health outcomes for animals on organic farms are similar to conventional dairies. And the Norwegian Scientific Committee for Food Safety reached a similar conclusion. It found no difference in objective disease occurrence on organic dairy farms as compared to conventional dairies. And while pigs and poultry on organic farms may enjoy better access to open areas, this freedom, study shows, also increases their exposure to parasites, pathogens, and predators. As for the environment, yes, organic farming will mean that in any one field, a farmer will use less energy and create fewer greenhouse gases. But there's a problem here. 
By foregoing fertilizers and pesticides, organic farming is much, much less efficient than standard farming, which means that organic farmers need much more land to grow the same amount of food. A major study in Europe found that to produce the same gallon of milk organically, you need 59% more land. To produce meat, you need 82% more land, and for crops, it's more than 200%. And more land for agriculture means less land for nature. If U.S. agricultural production was entirely organic, it would mean we would need to convert an area bigger than the size of California entirely to farmland. Economically, the lower productivity of organics means we have to commit more resources, land, labor, and capital. The total cost of the U.S. economy of going organic would run to about $200 billion annually. But surely organic foods mean no pesticides, right? Wrong. Organic farming can use any pesticide that is natural. Natural pesticides include, for example, copper sulfate and pyrethrin. The former has resulted in liver disease in vineyard sprayers in France, according to a 1996 study, and the latter a 3.7-fold increase in leukemia among farmers who handle it compared to those who had not, according to a 2002 study. Yes, it is true that non-organic foods carry a higher risk of pesticide contamination, but that risk is almost non-existent. Rough calculations suggest that all the pesticides on food eaten by Americans may cause around 20 extra cancer deaths per year. You have a similar chance of being mauled to death by a cow. In sum, organic food is not healthier for you, nor is it better for animals and the environment than conventionally farmed food. I know this goes against everything you've come to believe, but that only proves the power of marketing. Organic food is a first-world luxury, and while buying it is just as valid as any other luxury purchase, one should resist any implied moral superiority, as, for example, when fashion designer Vivian Westwood famously exclaimed that people who can't afford organic food should eat less. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the developing world don't have the option of eating less. They worry about eating, period. To do that, they need access to cheaper food, which means more access to effective fertilizers and pesticides. So next time you see organic produce at the supermarket, don't just swallow the marketing campaign without some critical thought. I'm Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. To keep our videos free, click here. Now, if you're like me and you actually are deeply informed about a lot of things, like, well, when you can do studies like this, you're probably comparing wheat to wheat and you're, you're looking at mass-produced crops like wheat and soybean and corn, which in of themselves are environmental problems and the scale and the methodology by which we produce them, and that there is, there is organic and there's factory organic 
and then there's conventional, and there's factory conventional, and that those are four things, not two, as, as seem to be made together in this video. And I have more to say about this, but before I do, it's not often that one reads a well-thought-out, logical um, comment on YouTube, but there is one here from a guy named Adam Walser, and he does the majority of rebutting of this for me. And here's what he says in response to this on a comment on the YouTube video I have linked to in the, in the show notes where I got this audio uh, from two weeks ago. Organic farmer here. I certainly appreciate the benefit conventional farms play in feeding the Earth's population, but there are several claims here that are wildly overstated. The organic results in 50% lower acre-by-acre acre yields, for instance. I am not sure what sort of cherry-pick study you used here, but my 35 years of being born, raised on, and now farming in organic farms has shown me that yield decreases by organic are often marginal or non-existent. To be sure, certain crops do suffer significant yield loss, but these are the exception, not the rule. And 50-plus percent is an outrageous claim. Additionally, many of your criticisms are straw man arguments or directly contradicted by the evidence. There are an overwhelming number of studies that indicate organics have much higher levels of certain nutrients, such as 50-plus percent greater omega-3 fatty acids contained in organic dairy and beef, or much higher levels of anthocyanins or flavanols in organic berries and vegetables. You cherry-picked highly contradicted data and presented it as uncontroverted fact. Also, comparing prethoids to conventional pesticides is ridiculous. There are pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides used in conventional farming that have a field reentry period of greater than 365 days after application. That means they're still there a year later. Okay, that's what that means. Conventional farms near myself routinely spray chemicals which require the applicator to ride within the cab of a tractor with an entirely controlled atmosphere carrying his own oxygen supply to avoid any possible exposure. This comparison of false equivalency is outright dishonest. No one that I know of has ever claimed that organic applications are so benign as to be entirely inert, but your argument on this matter is unbelievably dishonest. Another would be the claim that the organic livestock is no better treated because chickens and pigs are exposed to predators if allowed outside. This is simply a stupid claim and really proves how far you are willing to go to force your point. Sure, animals allowed outdoors are at higher risk of predator attack. So are you for that matter. I doubt you would say your life would be better if you were left in a cage versus being left outside. Lastly, you have entirely ignored many of the greatest benefits to organic farming. First, the benefit to the land itself. Organic farmers year over year improve the quality of land that they farm through fertilization and crop rota rotation techniques that add rather than detract from soil organic matter and overall nutrient content. Organic is by no means perfect, but from a sustainability perspective, the use of land is far superior to to conventional farming. I could go on and on with the other very real benefits you seemingly choose to ignore. Again, I'm not an organic zealot the vast majority of my time. My family buys conventional produce, meat, and dairy products. I believe that conventional farming has a very important place in global food production, but you present organic farming as having zero benefit over conventional farming and purely clever marketing tactic. This is a dishonest take in which one must willfully bind themselves to the, blind themselves to the truth. First time I've I've clapped in response to a YouTube comment ever. I don't really have to say much else. That's an incredibly articulate, 
logical rebuttal that specifically points out several fallacies within the argument. The marketing here is this piece from Prager University. And this bothers me because Prager puts out some really good things that do an effective logical job of rebutting fallacies on the left. The problem is when it comes to the fallacies of the right, instead of also rebutting those, they tend to grab onto those fallacies and figure out how to defend them. Um, studies indicate. So here's just a couple of things. Well, studies indicate. Well, are these the same people that did studies that say it's okay for you to eat food that's been drenched in Roundup? I would think they are. Do you think it's okay for you to eat food that's been drenched in Roundup and it has no health risks to you? Really? If so, come on. Then, then go ahead and do that. And, and then to you, it's not worth the extra cost. To me, it is. But I think the bigger thing here is what are we talking about? What crops are we talking about? Are we talking about wheat? And wheat in of itself, modern wheat, whether it's grown organically or whether it's grown conventionally, is toxic to human beings. I know you don't think it is, half of you at least, but it is. And it would be much better eating wheat in a sprouted form than eating wheat without sprouting it due to a whole list of reasons that we won't even get into today. But when we look at organic... Again, we are looking at it from a standpoint of what we don't do versus what we do do. All right? So one thing that's done, for instance, with wheat that would be conveniently ignored here is that, sure, there might be some sort of a pesticide sprayed upon organically grown wheat, but is a naturally derived insecticide, for instance. But they won't be using an herbicide like Roundup. Well, Jack, there's no Roundup ready wheat, so why would they do that? Oh, you don't know? Oh, you don't know, do you? This is what you do with wheat to harvest it in modern day. And I've had people challenge me on this, and I've been able to point right to documentation on Monsanto's website that gives instructions on how to do it. So don't tell me you don't do it. I don't feel like looking it up today, but if you make me, I swear to God, I will, and I'll make you like an ass for trying to call me out on it. They get the wheat to where it's almost ready to harvest, but they want all the wheat nice and dry at the same time. So just a week or so, maybe three, before they're going to run a combine through there and harvest it, they spray the whole 10,000 acres of wheat with Roundup. Kill it. And they harvest it, grind it up, make it into shit, and you eat it. Okay, we don't do that with organic. So the question of is one more nutritious is really moot at that point. right? Now, I think you can make the case that certain organic products have higher nutrient density than their conventional equivalents. But if you look at something that's incredibly nutrient deficient in the first place, like wheat then it's probably not much more nutrient-dense because what do you mean by nutrient density? As far as lower yields, again, we're back to the entire concept of equivalent crops under equivalent circumstances, because this is how science thinks, except attempting to eliminate all but one variable. Two fields managed the same way, one conventionally, one organically. Well, you don't manage if you're going to grow organically Let's start out with the real problem, okay? Organic started out as a great idea. Then the government took it over and defined what it was and screwed it up. So the state is a problem here in of itself. But I visited one gentleman in northern Missouri, almost into uh, Iowa, who's growing corn on a piece of land that was so bad and so known to be so bad that when he went down to the tax office to do some paperwork, girl behind the counter laughed at him and said, oh, you're the fool that bought that farm. 
And today he's farming 18 acres, and one of the crops that he grows on it is corn. And he has better yields per acre than anybody else would on an equivalent 18 acres, except he's not growing corn only on those 18 acres, but he is growing corn in row crops. Yeah. And he's, he's beyond organic, and I think that's the point as well. Where we need to be getting to is not some watered-down standard that the government comes up with as organic. What we need to be doing is supporting producers that are actually going beyond requirements of organic and actually thinking about rebuilding soil, remineralizing soil, putting carbon into soil, not because the polar bears are going to die, but because the carbon belongs in the soil, and when the carbon's in the soil, it's more resilient and it grows higher quality, more nutritious food. So, on some levels, this rebuttal or this, uh, this, this assertion that you, know, you don't get a big nutritional advantage from buying organic food is accurate. If you're going into a store and you're buying a large brand version of wheat bread versus another large brand version of organic wheat bread, you're probably not getting a hell of a lot of a difference in nutritional density. I'll, I'll give you that. You are probably getting less toxins in your food. And the land that it was grown on, even they conceded, is probably better off for it than if it were farmed conventionally. What they're saying is, well, you have to farm twice as much of that land. Well, if we're growing wheat. Now, the final part about livestock being more susceptible to uh, getting a disease or a parasite or attacked by a predator because it has freedom... Dude, if you have to pull that out, you're out of shit to say, and you should have shut up a little bit longer ago. That's, that is a, I'll do it again this week, this is my week for using the word, that is a retarded argument. It really is. And, and of course, what I mean by retarded is someone that's not, you know, mentally impaired, yet behaves as though if they are. The concept that it's better off to have a pig locked up in a cage where it can't even roll over or turn around than to have it out on pasture because, well, you know, it could get injured or get a disease out there. It is just a stupid argument. I would like to take people that make that argument and let them live in that cage for about a week and see what they would prefer. And when they say health outcomes are about the same, what do you mean by that? They don't die? I mean, what do you mean by that? That's another, like, that's another open-ended fallacy. Well, health outcomes are about the same. By what judgment? By what judgment do you make that assertion? Are you looking at mortality rates and factoring in the predator losses versus the animals that just drop over because they're standing in their own shit? Can you really look me in the eye and tell me that a chicken raised on pasture is not more beneficial as far as a food product to the person buying it than one that's raised in a chicken house where it stands up to its armpits and its own shit? And its best day on earth is the day that it dies? Are you that asinine? Are you that stupid? And the answer when it comes to Prager University is yes. Because while Prager will do an excellent job of rebutting many of the arguments that are made on fields from the left, they do a terrible job in putting the same standard to arguments that are made by industry and business on the right. And again, we're back to the same real problem here. A false dichotomy. A false dichotomy. Well, is conventional or organic food better? Who told you that was your two options? Well, the system told you. What is a better option than organic? 
The food that the guy down the road from you is producing, who's not 100% organic in his practices, but it's produced locally, and it's done with great care, and no one is driving a tractor with their own oxygen supply to spray whatever the hell's going on and on it. The guy down the road with the farm stand who, yeah, he throws a little bit of, uh, of NPK chemical fertilizer on his field, but that's his only non-organic process. And yet, even though he's doing that, and that's not the most beneficial thing, he's turning in all the organic matter in his field, and his field is full of earthworms. That's better than buying an organic watermelon. You're better off buying his watermelon. But do you want the truth? When it comes to not necessarily nutritional density, but the toxins you're, in, you're ingesting into your body, your best choice would be completely naturally grown. Okay? Um, locally grown but not 100% natural. Organic, and then conventional. That would be your order of choice. So completely naturally grown. We don't do that at commercial scale because it doesn't lend itself to commercial scale. And by the way, the whole concept of, well, we'd have to take up the area of a state the size of California to do this is, is actually another retarded argument. We have far too many people out of the natural uh, agricultural spaces, people like Masanuba Fukuoka, who produced yields that were three times, three times with crops like rice, which are staple crops, using natural low-input farming methodologies. The other thing is we really should be a society that relies more on proteins from ruminants. And we could be moving ruminants through areas where we don't have to destroy the fact that those are natural areas. We don't have to take away nature and plow in a field. We can move cattle through forest. It actually works really well. We can move hogs through forest. We can move chickens through forest and on edges and create savannas. We can take vast wastelands that, 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 that modern agriculture has created and turn them into savanna prairies that's better not only for the animals we're consuming and we're raising on it, but better for all the wildlife around it and do something on scale at tens of thousands of acres like Mark Shepard's done on 110 acres in Wisconsin. These are all things that can be done. But people like Prager University turned a blind eye to all this because they lumped it in with the left. The people doing this work are not the left politically or ideologically. In fact, they're also not the right. They're by and large libertarians. If you ask Joel Salton to define himself politically, he would define himself as a libertarian. Somewhat a right-leaning libertarian, but definitely a libertarian. If you'd ask me to define myself, well, I think you know where I come down on that. A little bit further toward freedom and a little bit further from statism, even then leaning left or right as a libertarian. I'll just leave it at that today. But this is this entire argument is a straw man argument because it doesn't actually address the concerns and it doesn't actually address the concept of true choice in the marketplace and it doesn't address the overall problem which is the government's stranglehold on the industry of agriculture to define what is and what isn't something and to define what is and what is not by a label based on control of government. But, hey, you know... That would make it a little more complicated to discuss. And we don't want that. It'd be much easier if we could just make it a simple Coke or Pepsi and prove they both suck. Because, yes, this is my assertion. On a mass scale, factory organic sucks. 
So does Factory Conventional. The fact that Factory Organic sucks a little bit less is not good enough in general with many products to demand a 20% or 25% premium in cost. But in many other products, it's actually even, it, it would actually be even fair to pay more. It all depends. Are we talking about factorization of agriculture, or are we talking about returning agriculture to something that people actually do in the cultivation of land, lending itself, as Masanobu Fukuoka said, as the cultivation of human beings? Those are my thoughts on this matter. But again, that requires thinking at a much deeper level than A or B, Coke or Pepsi, gold or silver, etc., etc., Anyway, if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the ways that you can help support our show is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. When you go there, you can see all the reviews that I do of products on Amazon.com, and uh, you can check those out. You can also click on a link there and get over and see the Amazon items deal, uh, the Amazon uh, gold deals of the day that they have available to you. And anytime you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you do help the survival podcast. Um, The one I have for you today as far as a review is one I just came across. And uh, it's it's awesome. So Tuesday, I went fishing. And I left you guys with a rewind show. I took a mental health day. And it kind of made me feel like I should take probably one of those a month, at least a month where I'm not doing some kind of workshop or something like that. Uh, because what's the point of working for yourself and busting your ass for nine years building something like TSP if you can't take a day off and do something you love once in a while? Um, but I went out fishing with a guy named Omar Cotter and uh, a buddy of mine named David, and uh, we had a great day. In fact, our fish tally was uh, pretty impressive. We put in about 6.30 uh, and took a pretty good ride out on Lake Tawakan. It's like a small inland sea. And uh, well before noon, we were back at the dock, and our haul was 50 sand bass. Some people call them white bass. Four yellow bass, which are like the, the white bass little brother. 90% of the time you throw those back, but we had four that were worth keeping. One blue cat. I caught a blue catfish um, in about 24 feet of water with a slab lure, yeah, uh, while we were slabbing for uh, sand bass, stripers, and hybrids, and a striper. Now, we also caught a bunch of other fish. We caught a ton of yellow bass we threw back. Caught quite a few stripers. Uh, it's not stripers. Uh, hybrids, which are the sand bass striper hybrids. Um, that uh, were They have to be 18 inches, you know, like 16, 17 inches. They had to go back. Just weren't quite big enough to keep. Um, but the point is we came back with a pile of fish. And uh, one of the great things about hiring a guide instead of doing it yourself is when you come back with all those fish, you have a beer, and the guide cleans the fish. And if you're a nice guy, you get your guide a beer. In this case, it was pretty early, so we had like a Gatorade. Uh, but you get my point. You don't have to do the work. The guide does the work. He gets paid for it. So I learned a long time ago from my good buddy, uh, my late friend Hal Dodd, to use an electric knife for filleting fish. So I wasn't surprised when Omar whipped out this electric knife. I was surprised when I looked at it. It's made by Rapala, and it is a purpose-made electric fillet knife. It has two different blades. One's a 6-inch, one's a 7.5. They pop right in and out. It runs on AC or DC power. So he just hooked it straight up to the battery terminal on his boat at the cleaning station uh, back at the dock, and bzz, 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 the fish just got taken care of. And if you've never filleted with an electric fillet knife, I will tell you there's a bit of a learning curve to it because you cut down to where you hit that you know that backbone and you don't want to cut into it and you turn sideways and you cut your fillet off. You get right down to the tail, you don't cut through, you flip it over and then you skin it and then you cut the rib bones off. And 
I'm telling you, Omar was going through those at 30, cents, 30 seconds of fish, both sides. Both sides. And I kicked myself as soon as he was done that I didn't video him, just do a couple, you know, just so you guys could see how fast a guy that's skilled with it does. But what I love about this, this uh, fillet knife is, first of all, it's affordable. It's under 50 bucks. I think they're like $46 or something like that. Um, so it's not expensive. Number two, since it runs off AC or DC, that means if you have power, you can run it. Because I have yet to see a third option. There's AC power and there's DC power, right? And most DC power is 12 volt, which is what this stuff runs on. So it's got basically it's a DC product, and it's got an AC DC adapter that'll plug into an AC outlet, and there's a little DC plug to grab onto it. But you can plug it into a cigarette lighter style plug. You can clamp it straight onto a battery. So just about anywhere you'd be, you can use it. So if you're out camping and you're like, you know, loading everything up on the back of an ATV and going back into the backcountry with your ATV. And you catch a mess of fish, you can just clip onto the battery terminals of your ATV. Or if you keep it in your boat, you can just clip onto the battery terminals in your boat, etc. If, you, if the grid was down, you could attach it to your Stephen Harris battery bank and get to filleting. So I just think it's incredibly versatile. But here's the big reason. I, I don't own this yet. Uh, another than playing with Omar's for a little bit to just check it out, I haven't actually used one yet because I paid the guy to take me fishing, so I paid him to clean my fish for me. But... Omar has been guiding fishing trips for 20 years. He runs two to six trips a week, almost all year round. If there was a better tool to clean a lot of fish fast, he would have it. So I highly recommend this. Now, here's my deal. I have an electric knife that's just a plain electric knife that works pretty decent. I'm still going to get one of these. I also have regular fillet knives. And if I catch, like, five fish... um. I'm probably just going to grab my little, you know, cheapo uh, fillet knife and fillet them. When you start getting to fish, though, like large numbers of bluegills, panfish, etc., uh, crappie, sand bass, catfish, where you're cleaning 15, 20, 30, 40 fish, it, it just takes too long any other way. You try a fillet knife, the electric fillet knife, you'll be sold. You'll never want to do it any other way. I promise you. By the way, I found a video of somebody using this knife so you can see how it would work. And toward the end of it, they say, this is we're going to set up our second cutting board. We're going to be cutting the lateral bones out. And they also, they're, What they're really talking about is getting rid of a bloodline on sand bass. If you fish for sand bass, you fillet them, you cut the rib bones out, you're done. Occasionally, you might leave a bone or two you have to worry about, but in general, you're done. You don't have to worry about it. The bloodline that they call it, the red meat in a sand bass, don't worry about it. It doesn't taste funny. It's fine. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Bigger stripers, some other fish, yes, yes, you want to cut that stuff out. With, with sand bass, leave it alone. Just stop worrying about stupid shit. Not everything's supposed to be white, okay? There's a little discoloration there. It's okay. It's going to be okay. People pay lots of money for tuna, and it's freaking red, okay? But they do have kind of a, a greasy fattiness to them. And all you do, I said in the review, I would say this is on the air to explain how to do it. You take all your, your skinless, boneless fillets. You throw them into a bucket, you take a hose, and you hit them with a high pressure from your hose, and they'll foam up, and you dump it out, and you do it again. You do it maybe three times. When they stop foaming up, then you go ahead, put them in your bag, move on with your life, and you won't have anything to worry about. That's, and I'm going to tell you, if there's a person that's eaten a lot of sand bass in their life, it's me. Before I started this show, I had a little boat. I lived 10 minutes from Joe Pool Lake. And I was fishing four to five nights a week, and I was bringing home a limit almost every night through the summer. We're talking thousands of sand bass. I know my sand bass. 
Trust me, guys, stop worrying about the little bit of red meat and check out this knife. And always consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com to help the Survival Podcast out because that's an easy, painless way for you to do just that. Okay, that brings me to um, our song of the day today. And John Adam is back at his job. He's got a, a great one for us today because um, I never heard of the band, never heard of the song. It's called In This Life by the Strumbellas. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty cool song. Let me hit you with a few of the words. Um, I know the seasons ain't been changing, and every day it looks like rain, but I keep hoping for that sun. The streets are filled with demons, Lord, that's never going to change, but I still want to be with everyone. I know there's something for you out there in this life. I know there's something out there for you in this life. The rivers are getting low and the skyscrapers all cover the town. But I still work until the day's done. The people all dressed in black and all the cars, they look the same. But I got nowhere left to run. I know there's something for you out there in this life. I think we all feel that way from time to time. You know, the, the, the negative part of this song. The, 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 there's just massive damage being done to everything around us and it seems like the cities just keep growing like some kind of cancer is sore on the planet um, sometimes and when it says the seasons ain't been changing and every day it looks like rain I don't think that's literal I think that's metaphorical like sometimes people just feel like no matter what I do I can't get ahead I know some of you have felt that way I know all of you have felt that way at some point in your life I know I felt that way in, in, at some point in my life you almost feel like just I can't catch a break I work so hard, I do so much, and I try so hard, and I'm looking at other people around me that are succeeding, and I'm not doing that yet, or I'm not doing that now, or I used to, and now I'm not. I'm just in this hole. I'm in an antlion trap type thing. But there's something out there for you in this life. This is back to my whole you know, litmus test for is your mission done on life. If you can fog a mirror, you have something left to do. And what a great song for a Friday. John just seems to nail stuff like this. This time I guess he would have known exactly when it would come up. But uh, this is when you get into your weekends and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to go out and, and work in the yard or I'm going to work on something or I'm going to start, you know, planning this business or developing this material that I've been talking about or I'm just going to take a freaking break and go fishing, whatever it is. It's a good time to kind of put your thoughts in perspective. And understand that no matter how hard things get, there is something for you here. And sometimes I think one of the most important things to teach people, and I didn't know I was going to talk about it this way, because I'm big on like if something's hard, just keep doing it, kick its ass. But some things are not supposed to be hard. Or some things are hard because you're on the wrong path. And I think when things are not working for long enough, you, you do have to be willing to step back and say to yourself, I know there's something for me in this life. But maybe this isn't the path or this isn't it. And be willing to be flexible and change and look for what really is the right path. Because what you find is when you actually step onto the right path, it may be hard at first. Life may throw a lot of shit at you. But once you take a few steps down it, once you start that momentum, it should get easier. It doesn't mean there won't be problems, things won't break. If you're a farmer, things won't die. If you're in business, some product won't fail. It doesn't mean that. But the overall momentum, it should get easier. So if it's not getting easier, you're either doing it wrong or you're on the wrong path. And it's up to you to figure out what that is. Weekends are a great time for that. 
And Fridays are a great time to just chill the hell out and have a beer. So maybe that's what you should do tonight. I know I'm going to probably go make a freaking margarita tonight. I went out to a restaurant last night and I had to make me a margarita. It tasted like freaking Kool-Aid. Does nobody know how to make a margarita? I'm going to make your weekend. I'm going to tell you how to make a freaking margarita that tastes like a freaking margarita like they make in Mexico, not this fishbowl crap they make in America. Here you go, your survival guide to making your own freaking margaritas. Get a lime. Squeeze the lime. You should get about one ounce of lime juice out of a lime. If you don't, the lime seller is ripping you off. You should only have to measure it once, and you should know about how much lime that is. If that's what you're getting, take the lime. Squeeze the lime into a glass full of ice. Not a giant freaking fishbowl. No, no, no. A little highball glass, right? Squeeze an ounce of lime juice in there. Get your ass some good tequila. Not that silver expensive shit and not that cheap-ass crap that kids drink and get hung over on, something like an 1800 Reposado, okay? You want tequila that has flavor in it. You don't want silver tequila that's weak in your freaking margarita. You might as well make it with freaking, uh, what do you call it, vodka at that point. So get yourself a, a good gold tequila, 100% agave with good flavor, and put about one and a quarter ounces or one actual shot into your one ounce of lime juice. Get your ass some good orange liqueur like Contreau or Grand Marnier and three quarters of an ounce of that. Okay, That's with your ice. Then this is the secret. Okay, A little bit, a tiny bit, just enough to give the hint of bubbly of sparkling water. What? That's not how... No, that's not how they do it in Mexico. Trust Jack. Trust Jack. Best thing to do, put all of that shit into a shaker... Rim a glass with your lime that you squeezed, put some salt on it, shake that thing until it gets really frothy, and dump it. Don't worry about straining it off the ice. Put it on, Just dump that shit in your glass. It will be tart. It will taste like an adult beverage, not a child's Kool-Aid that somebody spiked with cheap vodka. Didn't know I was going to tell you that today either, but drinking a shitty margarita made me angry, and I don't want... I am here, guys, listen, here at the end of the show, I am here to help you prepare for all the bad things in life, whether that's a tornado ripping a roof off of your house, the zombies coming to munch on your brains, losing your job, no matter what, getting lost in the woods, doesn't matter what it is, we're here to help you prepare for everything. And one thing we should be helping you to prepare for is the avoidance of shitty margaritas. So, when somebody tells you a place has great margaritas, ask them if it comes in a fishbowl. If they say that, never take that person's advice again. They don't know about margaritas. Don't take their investment advice. Don't take their preparedness advice. Take the preparedness advice of a man who knows how to make a margarita properly. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. I know the seasons ain't been changing And every day looks like rain But I keep hoping for that sun The streets are filled with demons, Lord That's never gonna change But I still wanna be with everyone I know there's something for you out there in this Getting low and the skyscrapers all cover the town But I still work until the day's done 
The people all dressed in black And all the cars, they look the same But I got nowhere left to run I know there's something for you out there in this I know there's something for you out there in this life.